Welcome back to Path to Glory, the Warhammer Underworlds podcast that focuses on competitive gaming, player development, and community growth. I'm your host, Amon Kusro, and in today's episode, I will not be present. That's right. I'm actually going to be, at the time of you listening to this, journeying around Middle Earth. That's right. I am in New Zealand for my honeymoon, and I will be out of pocket for the next three weeks. However, in today's episode, we are going to have Zach, George, and Mark start our tier list series, where we'll be going over a pair of seasons at a time and discuss how they rank in the Warhammer Underworlds meta. Now, you're probably wondering, why? Well, we've been talking about tier lists internally for quite a bit, and Zach and I also had quite a spirited discussion the other day, which we were like, hey, if we're going to chat about this, we might as well create some content. And so we're super excited to present today's episode. I hope you really enjoy it. Mark, George, and Zach are going to take it away by ranking the warbands in the Shadespire and Nightfold seasons. Thank you for that intro, Aman. Welcome to Path to Glory. We're excited to bring you our tearless episode. I am your host for today, Zach, and with me today are George and Mark. How are you guys doing today? Pretty good, Zach. Thanks. Yeah, pretty good up here as well. Finally getting some snow up in the Northeast. So, <laughs> Oh, we got some snow that's stuck these last couple of days and it's made me so happy. I hate cold weather without snow, but once there's snow, I'm like, I love the winter. I think that lasts for me until about February and then... I run out of patience, although this year with it starting later, hopefully I can make it through the whole winter without getting upset at snow. Oh, I love That's the cold. I love snow, but we get too little of both in the city this year. That's a little sad. Yeah, I was hoping for a white Christmas and holidays, but I'll, I'll take what we can get. I'll take what we can get. As Amon said in the intro, we're doing our tier list, and he is out on his honeymoon. Congratulations to Amon. We all wish him the best trip. New Zealand is a I think that's like a 20-hour flight or something like that. It's something absurd from where he's at. So hopefully he is not losing his mind on the plane. But we'll <laughs> talk to him when he gets back. But for now, we are going to be going through the Shadespire Night Vault Warbands and separating them into tiers. We're going to talk about how our tier list is structured in a little bit here. First, we got a little bit of housekeeping to do. As always, we want to give a big thanks to our patrons. If you support us on Patreon or in any other way, whether that is leaving reviews or liking us or talking about our content in the various areas of the underworld space, we really appreciate you, but we especially appreciate our patrons. We have also made the leap to Spotify for the home for our podcasting headquarters. Please go there, follow us, give us some listens, rate us if you are feeling very generous, but we thank everyone who is listening to us and uh, enjoys our content. In our Path to Worlds segment, this is our segment where we talk about the events that are guaranteed to give qualifiers for the Worlds event at the end of the year. For right now, at least in the States, we know that Las Vegas Open, which will be here in a couple weeks in Las Vegas, is the first one. In February, we will have the Cherokee Open, also run by the folks over at Frontline Gaming. That is February 24th through 26th. In March 20th through 24th, we'll have Adepticon. They recently put up the Grand Clash information, so that'll be the Saturday and Sunday of Adepticon. And then in August, August 28th through September 1st, will be the Nova Open. That'll be over in D.C. We hope to see you at some or all of these events. I myself will be going to Vegas and Adepticon. I'm going to try to make Nova this year. George, uh, what events are you going to this year for that are qualifiers? Oh, I will be at Adepticon and at Nova. I'm trying to see if I can swing going down to Carolina, but 
it's looking iffier for the Cherokee Open. That's fair. What about you, Mark? I will definitely be attending the Nova Open again. Got to defend that title. Uh, I'm leaning towards going to Adepticon as well, but I've not made solid plans yet. So we'll see if that ends up shaking out. And one other thing I wanted to shout out while we were here, I know, I think we're mostly focused on plugging the U.S. qualifiers for now, Mm -hmm. uh, but somebody did let me know that there's one going to be held at Warhammer World in the U.K. on April 27th. So if you're out in the U.K., try and grab that ticket and get over here for uh, Atlanta in November. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good shout out. I would love to go play at a tournament at Warhammer World. I got to visit there during a vacation, but didn't get to play any games, so... Hopefully we get to see some of our friends across the pond. You can come see us at Worlds or come see us at any of these other events. We would love to meet you and uh, and do a little chit-chat. As more events appear and are shared, we'll update this list to ensure all of our listeners in the greater community that they have a chance to qualify and attend the World Championships of Warhammer. We hope to see you do your best. Today, we are bringing back one of our old favorite episodes. Uh, we've got Sleeve It or Leave It, or as Aman would say, Sleeve it or leave it. I can't do it as well as he does. Um, we'll just edit it in. It's fine. Yeah, we'll, we'll get his voice in here. <laughs> but today's card is Mazig's Malediction. Mark, if you want to read the card out and give your first thoughts about sleeving or leaving it, and then we'll go around the circle. Yeah, so Mazig's Malediction. It's a gambit spell, casts on one focus. If cast, choose an enemy fighter with one or more upgrades adjacent to the caster. The Chosen Fighter's player picks one, break the Chosen Fighter's upgrades, or give the Chosen Fighter one charge token. So I actually like this card quite a bit. I know the adjacency for the casting is a bit restrictive, uh, and it's maybe not something you want to pull out in round one. But I think like beginning of round two time frame, just the ability to go up, charge your opponent's important fighter, let's say it's like the headsman, the wielder on the headsman's curse or something like that. They're loaded up with the re-roll and maybe they've got lurking horror if they're playing like deadly depths or something. You just go up, you charge them. Even if you don't kill them, you can just say, okay, now you have either reduced efficiency for the round because I broke all your upgrades or I gave you the charge token and locked you out. So I think I am sleeping this card. I know it's not going to be the most popular even in Nemesis. It often gets, gets cut. Uh, but I think there's a little bit more application to this that I would like to explore, especially as I mentioned on the previous episode, as I go into the Thricefold Discord. I think this kind of suits them in terms of the control aspects of the warband, just giving your opponent bad choices, or in this case, making making it difficult for them going throughout the rest of the game with their key fighter. Yeah, definitely some good points, Mark. For me, it's more of a leave it. I am inching more towards leave it, but... The charge rule just means that charge tokens have never been more unimpactful. And I think that a lot of the situations where I'd really want to say I want to break your upgrades, it's against a warband where they'll be like, fine, I'll take the charge token and it's not going to hurt me as much as you'd think. So I'm wavering and you may yet change my mind the first time you just break my dreams with Thricefold. But for now, it's a leave it for me. I'm also going to say leave it. I think this card has plenty of use with the right warband. I think Thricefold is a great call out. I could also see maybe running this in Mad Mob because you don't really care. You kind of want Headcracker to get close. But I think for the majority, yeah, like the fact that the opponent gets to choose, if this was you get to choose which one to do, I think it would be an excellent pick, maybe even an auto include. 
But the fact that your opponent is always going to figure out which one is less impactful for them makes it a little harder for me to take. And like Mark said, it often, you know, gets considered and then Enforce of Ross builds and Nemesis gets kind of left at the cutting floor, so to speak. So I'm going to say leave it, but I would not I would not look down on anyone who chooses to sleeve it. I think I've got that that Kanan brain. I have the exceptional efficiency, methodical assault, like you choose the bad thing, but you can often leverage those cards into like neither is a good choice, which I really like. But yes, this one does have some situational aspects to it that say like if you just take Final Curse, Avastos, Avalanche, that kind of stuff, you're going to have more general usage of it more than likely. But I thought it was an interesting card to talk about today and maybe one that needs some further exploration. That's true. And there, I think there's a little bit of unspoken power about putting choices on your opponent. You know, not only can you set it up so both choices are bad, but like the mental load of your opponent not only having to deal with their own cards and their own situation, but then you also are putting this pressure on them to be like, okay, now you have to interact with my cards and think about what my card is going to do to you and what you would choose in a given situation. You know, that's Temptations. Like you said, those are the Kynan cards. I know Soul Raid has a number of those as well. I, I think this also kind of leads into that. So maybe there's some interesting power there. I think that you're right. I think that was a really good one to discuss today. So good job uh, picking that one out. And I think we all had some solid thoughts on that. But now to time to get into the meat and potatoes of our episode. We will jump to our tier list. We know that's what you're all here for. We're excited to talk about it. We've been having some internal discussions lately. George, why don't you run us through how we're going to be ranking teams? So we're going to be using a tier list that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, with letter rankings from S at the top, because this is not school, all the way down to D. And the way these will map out is that S tier warbands are busted. These are warbands that are just head and shoulders above the rest, to the point that you need to consider the game balance. It maybe needs an adjustment. They're picks that have such a high ceiling or such a strong floor that they still can't lose easily that they define the meta. A tier picks are excellent. They're good choices. You'd expect to see some or all of them at any given large tournament grand clash. You would not be surprised to see them win or podium. These are warbands that tend to have at least a decent matchup against top meta threats, including the S tier, obviously, and have their own game plans that they're strong at executing. B tier is solid. These are warbands that are competitively viable. They don't put you necessarily in a place where you can't overcome the disadvantage of choosing them. They don't have insurmountable weaknesses, but they will give you just less bang for your buck than some of the higher tier choices. So you're picking them if you have a very specific plan in mind for the meta or a great deal of experience playing them. C tier warbands are below average. These are warbands that will just struggle to provide consistent results, especially good results. They'll probably give you consistently bad results. These might be picks that can still win. I mean, it's hard to say nothing can ever win, but their ceiling just isn't high enough or their floor is so low that they can get shut out of games that other warbands might be able to recover and probably need luck as well as skill to really pull out the big win. And the D tier is just bad. These are warbands that don't have competitive viability. These are warbands that even their, their ceiling is approaching the floor of higher tier picks in terms of glory, in terms of output, you'd be very surprised to see them even at the podium, let alone win. 
Yeah, and that's a good mindset to have going into this. I think most people are familiar with the tier list uh, and like what the tiers mean, but it's good to talk about it. And this first round of teams that we'll be talking about will probably be clustered together in a certain area, and we'll we'll talk about that as we go through them. But without further ado, we're going to jump right into it. For people who are newer to the game, maybe you're not super familiar with some of these older teams, so we'll kind of talk about their strengths and weaknesses. For people who've been playing for a long time, you may not be surprised at our opinions on these, but maybe you have a differing opinion. So uh, just kind of keep everything in mind as we go forward. And Mark, why don't you start us off talking about Garrick's Reavers? Yeah, so Garrick's Reavers, the OG aggro war band. Five fighters, basically poor defense characteristics, high offense characteristics, inspire when people are out of action. So you're probably already leaning towards taking more of an aggro choice with them. Things like Tooth and Claw, Void Curse Thralls works decently well. Breakneck Slaughter generally tend to be at least some of the first pairings that come to my mind for them. I think they've been outclassed by a lot of Horde aggro that's come out since their inception, which is maybe something that we're going to be saying a few times today. Uh, in terms of warbands that just in the original design of the game weren't quite as powerful as what we see these days. But I do think they have like the slightest bit of play. So I personally got them in the C tier. Uh, I think they can work okay with things like, I think Void Curse Thralls would be my preferred pairing, but Breakneck Slaughter's got some merit as the replacement. And then if you take Tooth and Claw, you do have the access to Gore Swamp and some additional dice and damage. So it's not like they have nothing that they synergize with and they have enough good faction cards to pair in that you don't feel like you're just playing rivals with them with one of the new decks. So that's like my kind of barrier to get them into C tier, but I do think they'll probably be, you know, in the mid to low end of that tier going forward. Yeah, I I would agree with just they need dice to work. I love them. These were the first Warband I ever painted, first one I ever played, but while they still have some aggro stats that can do work, it they're just not not quite there. Yeah, I basically agree with everything. They it, It's hard to say that people's favorites have been outclassed, and I think if you still enjoy playing them, you should go for it, because there's some cool play there. But uh, in terms of competitive scene, I would agree with everything Mark said. As a group, we're cool to put them in the C tier for now. Yeah, let's drop them on in there. And for people's reference, as we go through here, by the time we hit the end of this project, the last episode, we will be presenting the entire tier list summarized, just so you guys can kind of see where things shake out. But for now, we'll just be assigning things tiers as we go, and then maybe they'll shift around a little bit later. Yeah, and down the line, we'll also, not only will we have a nice summary roundup episode, but we'll have it visually out there for people who like seeing it on the website as well. So next, we'll move on to Steelheart's Champions, another of the OG box set. Uh, George, take us away. So Steelhearts are, they're tough. They really, they had windows of being incredibly strong in the meta, but I'm going to have to put them in the D tier just because they don't. What little things they do have that set them apart from even more recent warbands are really uncompensated by any type of ceiling in their faction objectives, by any type of really strong play in their faction upgrades. They have one really exceptional faction gambit, and they do have the unique distinction, well, semi-unique distinction of having access to base 3 damage on two of their fighters uninspired from the start of the game, which is quite similar to Domitan. And that's where it comes in. They're slow. They have low defense until they've already been attacked. And by the time you've been attacked, maybe it's too late. It won't matter if you inspired because you're dead. 
So it, they just feel like you're really pushing uphill. And again, I, I want to be clear that when we say something is D tier, it doesn't mean it's impossible to ever win with it. It's just unlikely to win consistently. It's difficult. And for these, you really, to get them to perform, you need your opponent to come to you. You need your opponent to let you score stuff. You need your dice to cooperate for your two hammer attacks. And that's a lot of random variance that has to line up to really win reliably. I don't disagree. I think they're probably down there, especially compared to a lot of elite teams we have nowadays. What deck would you say you would pair them with if you did want to run them? Probably have to put them with Fortress, just because they're so desperate for glory that they don't have to run out of their territory for. They're so desperate for glory that, you know, can motivate the opponent to step up at them. But the problem is Fortress doesn't have the kind of hold ceiling that they need. You know, if, if they could have fortress and claim the prize we might see a little bit more play but it's still just just so tough because their faction stuff is is fairly aggressive or all the way passive and they don't have anything that's kind of in that nice middle ground yeah that seems really fair it's a solid pick i mean i think you probably could do them with tooth and claw or breakneck if you just really wanted to lean into trying to take advantage of that base damage three but they will probably get stat checked by a lot of other things in the game yeah, I'm in the same boat. I've also got them in the D tier. I think the faction deck is just too supremely lacking. The stat balls are okay compared to kind of what exists in terms of Condemners or Domitan or something, but there's just very little support you're getting from their deck. So I think it's going to land them in the D tier. Maybe not the worst warband in the game. I don't think they'll be all the way at the bottom, but I'm not quite into that C tier range. Yep. D tier, it seems like a good place for them. And I think this is a theme you'll see going forward in this episode is in Nemesis, you really need a good amount of objectives to really perform in this format because you're trying to take your best objectives and the deck's best objectives. That is your universal deck's best objectives. And when you don't have a lot of those available, your glory is just not going to be as consistent as your opponent. So just like Reavers before them, except maybe a little bit worse. That'll bring us to Sepulchral Guard. This is one of my favorites. I talked about this a little bit on the episode where we reviewed the new starter set, I think. I want to put them in B tier. I think this is a warband that can perform really well with a lot of rivals decks in the game right now. And I think that their new deck and their new stats have given them a real breath of life for a bunch of dead guys. The power deck in this faction, personally, I think is quite insane. I think nearly every card in the power deck can be taken or at least considered. And their objectives, while not perfect, at least put them head and shoulders above a lot of other things from older seasons. And I think they are one of the few warbands in the game right now that can at least try to do a hold objective style game plan. But they can also do aggro quite well. I would pair them currently with void curse thralls i think it is very very good for them as it is mostly only upside they have great ways to bring void curse fighters back and apply effects and get extra movements and stuff so there's a lot of solid synergies there though they do kind of have the modern day issue in the current meta of bleeding a lot of glory having a lot of two glory or two wound fighters so I think B is a great place for them. Despite all their strengths, I don't think they quite crack it into A tier. Yeah, I think that's a really good summary. I, I picked these guys up shortly after they made the changes just because I already had the, the models ready to go. 
And before the changes, they just had zero faction surges, like, and the faction objectives in general made them relatively unplayable in Nemesis. So I'm really glad to see that they beefed them up enough to make them actually like a tournament contender. Like, you can win a tournament with Sepulchral Guard. The Glory Bleed is the main thing that is holding them back for me, like Zach said. But you can do some really fancy shenanigans with them with the Void Cursed, with the Warden's move action, plus the additional move actions you can chain off of it. And the Void Cursed synergizes particularly well, since we're talking about it, with the holding that one objective in enemy territory. You have the two Glory Surge, as well as a three Glory End Phase that require you to hold at least one that's not in your territory. I think it has to specifically be in enemy territory. So you can just Void Curse a champion, get him onto that token in enemy territory, raise him if you need to, but he can just kind of sit there and tank, especially because there's not as many distractions available to people in Nemesis. Definitely well said. I would agree with the pairing. I would agree with the placement. They do have a lot of potential, and the only reason I wouldn't put them in the A tier right now is is mostly Domitan, if, if I'm being honest. It's Domitan's ability to just farm them with Cleave and the amount of range warbands we see right now that really they, they will have a harder time fighting back against, even if they do have the advantage of saying, well, you can shoot me, but if I'm not dead, I'm still scoring a ton of glory and you can't push me off this token. Awesome. Well, I think B is a great place for them. It's nice to see a old team get revitalized by a remake, so to speak. That's a good place for them. That'll bring us to another old team. Mark, why don't you talk about Iron Skull's boys? Yeah, so we talked earlier about people who might be closer to the bottom of this tier list, and I think Iron Skull's unfortunately still kind of falls in that window. Uh, I do think they got quite a boost from Void Curse and Breakneck Slaughter. I think they maybe can start doing something, but they're just so limited by, again, maybe this is older warband design, but you've got two guys in a four-fighter warband who start on two fury for one damage, which is really just unacceptable in terms of activation efficiency, especially considering that the, not recent, but the change to how Inspire works with the Inspire steps means you can no longer pull off like the run through a lethal as part of a charge, Inspire, and then make your Inspired attack profile. It's just really limiting for them. I don't see a really good angle for them in the current meta that I wouldn't say is significantly outclassed by other four-fighter aggro like GSP or even like if you wanted to play Crimson Court a little more aggro. Like I, I just think they're outclassed pretty heavily. Headcracker is a big one. Like If you're looking for a four-fighter orc warband, there's, there's better options for sure. So I would put these guys in the D tier personally and for me, they're going to be closer to the bottom of D tier, if not at the bottom. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Not only that, but also the introduction of large in previous seasons. Like the five wounds on Gerzag used to be a great strength because it was kind of like, oh, you have the toughest leader in the game until Mala came out. During season one, he was just so hard to kill. And then now he's giving up an extra glory and one block is no longer like a really acceptable defense stat for a leader. So yeah, bottom of D, at least for what we have so far, they are probably the worst we've talked about. Yeah, I, I agree. There's not a lot to add, and it's a shame because I love the the models. They're one of my better paint jobs, but they're slow and they don't hit especially hard until they've been hit, and the objectives leave a lot to be desired. Well, speaking about slow, uh, George, why don't you talk about everyone's favorite naked dwarves, the Chosen Axes. Ah, uh, the Chosen Axes. Well, I am not 
a dwarf specialist. Those of you out from various discords are probably familiar with Watlab, and he is the man to talk to about a bear and a dwarf. But for me, these guys, oh man, they they have quite impressive stats. Let's let's start there, especially if you can access their inspired side. They have very impressive damage and accuracy. They stay just on one shield though, and that's that's the real problem. They move two uninspired. They cannot inspire before the end of round one because their condition is to hold an objective at the end of the action phase. So there's really only one pairing for these, and it is Void Crystalls. And that is because Void Crystalls is the only way you're inspiring at least one guy every round, and it's the only way you're ever going to maneuver them enough to, to really be hitting. That said, and I, I have witnessed it, have not been able to execute it myself, but if you do put in almost a thousand games to them, you will be able to do magical, scary, naked dwarf things and bonk people to death with Fuel Grimnir and his massive, yet sadly only range 1, to hammer 4 damage attack. They have excellent upgrades. They have some excellent gambits. They even have a couple of, of decent objectives. They suffer from, most of all, their Inspire condition and kind of the evolution we've had of stats and their creep. I think a stat that people don't talk about, but that's been creeped most severely since these early seasons, is movement. And we, we've covered multiple warbands already, and we had to talk about their slow. It's very hard for move three warbands to get up and get in your face, and these guys are only move two. So in addition to not getting in your face, they may even struggle to reach the tokens they need to stand on. I agree with that. Void Curse is a good pairing just for that, because you get all those extra moves and the capability to get where you need to be, like you said. I think another thing that can't be understated is the addition of salvage for these guys. Actually, I think was a massive boost. You need to bring basically every single upgrade that says Fuel Grimnir on it, because then you can Voltron him, and when he becomes powerful, like you said, he's just a beast. But before, it was a big risk because if Grimnir got murked early on or just got like a charge token put on him or something like that, you would end up with a bunch of cards that don't do anything. Now you can salvage them, which is excellent, but you don't want Grimnir to die anyway. So I, I would agree with the placement and basically everything you've said beyond that, though. This is a team that has the potential to go crazy mode, but has been stat creeped out quite hard. Agreed as well. I think C tier makes sense for them as just a slight bump up over the couple D tiers that we've talked about so far. Like George mentioned, the power deck is quite strong. And there's just enough objective support that like you can consider them, even though you're not going to be able to make as smooth of a deck as some of the higher tier warbands. So we'll see those dwarves go into the C tier. And that brings us to, I think, something that's near and dear to all of our hearts here on this episode, Spike Claws Swarm. While Sepulchral Guard was my first love, Spike Claws Swarm is one I've performed really well with over the years. And it shames me to say that I'm going to put them in C tier. I think their stats are still quite good. They were the... OG move five off the bat warband. Reavers had to inspire to five, if I'm not mistaken. I think some of them started on five. But they also were the only ones that were like two dodge early on or easily get to two dodge, have a really solid inspire condition. Their stats, I think, are really good. They're held back by their objective deck not being terribly awesome. And by that, I mean there's like two decent surges and they're both kill surges, and that's really about it. I don't even think any of their end phases are that good. I, I think that is what's really going to hold them back. Their power deck is not bad at all. 
They've got some decent stuff. Expendable is probably still one of the most crazy upgrades in the entire game. So if there ever comes a day where there's a objective deck that works really well with them and you could take 10 or 12 objectives from that deck specifically and then just take like the good power cards from this warband, maybe that tier will change. But there's nothing that really does that right now. You probably could run them Breakneck Slaughter and do okay. You probably could run them Tooth and Claw and do not great. I think, honestly, right now, as weird as it sounds, I think their best pairing is the new Masks deck because it's going to allow them to do funny hold objective things and res in enemy territory to stand on those objectives and do silly stuff like that that doesn't necessarily require you to do much killing. But that has been pretty untested so far, and I still don't think gets them out of C tier. Yeah, I think this is unfortunately the first one where you really see that this is a nemesis tier list and not a championship tier list. Because I think they would boost up considerably in championship just because they have solid stats, good power cards, easy inspire mechanic, and the resurrection is useful. Uh, I think one of the main things holding them back in nemesis outside of the fact that their objective deck is so bad is that there's not really a good weapons upgrade type of deck. Like, you can take Fearsome Fortress and you can get the Mason's Great Hammer, which is a solid weapon to pair with Black Hunger, for example. And then Bold Engineer can work with moving tokens onto onto starting hexes for resurrection. But there's not a deck that really has, like, multiple range one attack action upgrades that will work well with Black Hunger or, like, high dice upgrades consistently that will work well with the Festering Blades. You can grab those things if you go to like Deadly Depths, you have the Cursed Boarding Axe, but then again, it's still just one card. So you're just sitting there like waiting for this combo to happen where you don't have enough to get get the damage output that you need to stay relevant in the format. I personally like leaning towards Fearsome Fortress or Beastbound Assault with these guys. I think you have a little bit more consistent scoring there than on Breakneck Slaughter or Tooth and Claw just because you're not relying as heavily on dice but you're still running into that that faction objective deck issue that's hard to overcome in the format. Yeah, and I, I think that everyone listening can hear the, the anguish in our voices because we love our Skaven, and Scritch is the greatest. Yes, yes. But, you know, I have a lot of affection for these. This is the first Warband I ever won glass with way back in the day, and I always liked playing them for, you know, like flex hold objective, mischievous spirits and shenanigans. But I think the way Nemesis is right now, you, you mentioned Fortress and Beastbound, and those are both solid, but where they fall apart a little bit is you'll struggle to take enough gambits that choose your friendly fighters, and you'll still struggle to have enough juice in the end phase to make up for the bleed you'll have raising your little rats. It's just tough. I think they're kind of forced to play that torpedo aggro. Like, I like playing them not aggro, but I think the best way to leverage what they do have going for them is, is aggro like with Breakneck Slaughter, because Scritch is still absolutely terrifying. If you slap any of those Breakneck Gambits on him, he's going to inspire and become two hammers, three range, two, six move, plus whatever the Gambit gave him. So you, you put the plus one damage on him, and he's moving six, two hammers, four damage in round one. With range two, I mean, he's going to hit something, if he hits, is the problem. And I don't like leaning on dice that heavily. But when it works, it'll it'll really work. And when it doesn't work, it really won't work. Which is just a shame because I always liked how consistently schemey you could be and run around with them. They would do a lot better in championship with a more open pool. And this is just a good example to reiterate for every warband we're talking about here. 
this tier list is kind of subject to the decks that exist for them. So there could be a deck that Spiteclaw just explodes with. I, I think a deck with objectives that Spiteclaw explodes with is probably going to be OP for everyone, but you never know, right? There could be something in just the right niche. And this is true for just about every Warband we'll talk about. So do keep that in mind, at least especially for Spiteclaw. This is a case where they've got some excellent Gambit, some really strong upgrades, some really strong stats, but they don't have the synergies and objectives to tie it all together. That's a great shout out to say that if you're listening to this when it, this drops, I think you will be in the same mindset as us when it comes to the decks that are currently available. But if you're listening to this five months in the future, six months in the future, and we got new decks out, hey, maybe maybe Scritch has once again become the greatest. Yes, yes. And we will all be happy. But for the time being, it is just a wee bit sad. And that will bring us to our second Corn Warband, which is Magor's Fiends. Yeah, so Magor is something that I've used a little bit myself. I enjoy playing them as far as like a 4x4 type of fighter warband. I don't typically go for more elite stuff, but back when dice were crazy, so this was like beginning of Gnarlwood before stuff had gotten restricted and championship was still being played, took them to an event with Tooth and Claw plus a bunch of accuracy stuff, did the Magor thing, which is great. But I think just as a base faction, you've got four fighters. Each of them do two damage, which we mentioned is important when we were talking about Iron Skull's boys. And they have pretty good faction power cards. Like you've got the upgrade from the leader's pack to give Magor the minus one damage reduction card. You've got the trophy belt so that you can rack up additional glory for his kills. You've got some solid gambits to draw extra cards, reduce damage to one. You've got a push in there like an enemy distraction type of card. So I think they've got enough play in the power deck and a couple of decent objectives. I don't think anything super stands out, but some of them are just okay. Like the kill with a leader is fine for what you're trying to do. Having multiple fighters out of action, I think it's like four total or two on each side or something for two glory is not bad. So they are going to be leaning into dice a little bit, which I think limits their ceiling at a competitive event, just because you're going to have those games where you're not hitting attacks or where you're getting hit by everything and just get blown out. But the stats are good. The Inspire Condition's accessible enough, and you can get Magor up to two hammers, three damage with Cleave, plus additional dice from, again, Tooth and Claw quite reliably. I think that is probably their best pairing. I mentioned Gore Swamp earlier when we were talking about the Reavers, which I think is a fairly overlooked card until you hit that Corn Warband. You're like, oh, they're, they're moving four or five hexes, but my guys are now moving two unless I'm charging, uh, which is exactly what they want you to do because they want to engage and kill you, so... I've got them in the B tier. I think they've got more play than Garrick. I think they'll be on the lower end of the tier by the time all is said and done. Uh, but I think they can win if you hit that spike on dice. And again, Tooth and Claw I would, would be my preferred pairing. Breakneck has a little bit of play uh, as well as a secondary option. And then maybe below that, Void Curse. But I think I'd lean towards the other two first just because they give you that extra damage movement and accuracy a little bit more reliably. Very well said. I have been on the receiving end of Magor several times, and they, they are a, a warband with some strong stats that still hold up, I think, and that's the, the most important thing. They've, they've got enough stats that, you know, if they were printed today, they would not be completely unimpressive as a 4x4, let's say, unlike certain other recent 4x4s that have been printed with sad stats. They still have Riptooth going to 3 damage inspired, they still have Magor going to 3 damage inspired, and they have, as you said, some upgrades and gambits that are just extremely powerful effects we don't see anymore. So they, they have that potential, and they are just 
as a lot of these are held back mostly by objectives. Yeah, they're, they're fun with Void Curse, though. I do like them quite a bit with Void Curse. Although I will shout out the Tooth and Claw pairing again just to say that Gore Swamp is fantastically strong as a Void Curse counterplay, because all those reaction moves kind of start to suck when you can only move two hexes with them and maybe you can't even fulfill the condition that the reaction move requires you to achieve to make the move in the first place. I think this is the first one where I'm going to argue to bring down a tier. I don't think they're quite in B tier. I think they're C tier for me personally. I agree with basically everything that's been said. Their stats definitely hold up. They have some really powerful power cards. But if we're going to keep certain other warbands out of B tier because of lack of objectives, I think it would be remiss to put these guys up there. I think their glory floor and their glory ceiling is much lower than a lot of other things that are going to be in B tier, especially if you're doing the tooth and claw pairing, which doesn't particularly have the best objectives in the game. So while I do think they can brawl extremely well, if dice go hot and you're just getting glory from kills and denying your opponent glory by them being dead, which is often a great way to play, you will probably win a lot of those games, but I don't think you're going to be scoring through your deck the way that a lot of other warbands are going to. I would put them at probably the top of C tier. Now we get into like the nitty gritty of like what's C plus, what's B minus, where's kind of that gray area in there. But I don't know. I, I think comparing them to the other things that I would put in B tier, I don't think they're quite there. I think it's fair to say they're definitely on that cusp. And this is one that we'll, you may see shift up and down as we go to do our final tier list summary. And then we see, oh, well, there's one in front of them that they're probably better than or the one behind them that there's probably they're worse than. I think the one thing that slightly overcomes their issue with objectives is that they synergize a little bit better specifically with tooth and claw than some of the other ones we've stuck in c tier like garrick for example can take tooth and claw get the accuracy get gore swamp but they don't do as well with embrace savagery because they're five fighters instead of four they don't do as well with ferocious rampage with five fighters instead of four so like knocking down to that four grouping i think does help with a lot of the like move or die type of cards and then the ceiling, I think, is a little bit higher just because, like you said, if the dice do pop off, they pop off a little bit harder here, especially with the extra trophy belt. You can really farm some glory with Magor that you can't do quite as much with some of the other war bands. So hard to say whether maybe as a group we put them in low B or high C for now. Uh, maybe we'll just leave that decision till we hit the end summary and see where everything else shakes out. I think we could put them at bottom of B for the time being, but maybe, yeah, like you said, when we get to the end, I'll be, uh, I'll be poking and prodding. Maybe not as hard for these as for some others. So we go to our next newly updated team, the new one in the starter set. George, you wanted to talk about Farstriders. Yes, and I, I do love these models. I do love this warband. I have to confess to being a bit disappointed when I saw their new cards, which, you know, in hindsight is maybe a little unfair. They didn't get a lot of boost on their fighter cards, but they didn't need a lot of boost on their fighter cards because they're still a warband that all have range 3 attacks. They all have respectable range 1 attacks, and now their Inspire condition is substantially more accessible. They have some truly ridiculous faction gambits. I'm a deck builder and a tinkerer, but I struggle to take less than 7 of their faction gambits. E even more than, than Headsman, I, I struggle to cut a lot of their faction gambits because it's just all good stuff. Sidestep plus determined effort in one card. Double sidestep. You know, make an extra attack action in three different flavors. Very, very, very strong gambits. Upgrades a bit lackluster, but but that's acceptable. 
I'm going to put them in the B tier for now. And I think that I might be underrating them a bit. You know, I, I think that after some analysis, they, they could be said to be A tier just on their raw stats. But where they will fall apart a bit is their end phases. They struggle to fill out their end phases, even with their, their better pairings. And their best faction end phase is kind of like, I would like to lose to Void Curse Thralls. It's basically written because it says, hold an objective and kill two enemy fighters for two glory. But if I'm standing on an objective, I'm getting reshaping snared. And if I get snared, I can no longer inspire and I can't use the best part of my leader inspired, which is range four, three fury, one damage, grievous. So it's tough. I think a lot of what they do really well, a lot of other elite warbands can do just as well. You know, so it's, it's hard to say, well, they can stat check and they roll buckets of dice and make tons of attacks. And that's awesome, but they're just a bit more fair than some other warbands. Like, not all their range 3 attacks are grievous, right? So when I'm comparing these to, I want to play a 3-fighter elite warband and just go very aggressively into enemy territory and try to score a ton of glory and give, it, give up less back as I die, I could just play Domitan. I could just play Ripa. And I think that despite the Farstrider's kind of unique strong gambits and, and number of attacks and range of attacks, they don't have the end phase glory to carry them through that kind of trade of, well, I will give you three bounty, but I will take three or four bounty and I will score all my surges and my end phases and now you can't score anything. So right now I think their best pairing is Breakneck, which is cool because, I mean, Eager for the Fight, Rapid Strike, Need for Speed are all, you're going to score them every time, more or less. And you, you have to kind of, if you want any kind of ceiling on them, you need to play fastest around, which is just greedy and very brickable in a best of three. I love them. I want to love them more. I'm going to keep trying. I think there's some weird potential with Force of Frost. I think there's some weird potential with Fearsome Fortress, but it's all very cagey and a bit too reliant on your opponent doing what you need them to do. And that's no good. So Breakneck is still head and shoulders the best choice for them for me. And that's what holds them back. I think that's a great summary. Very in-depth. I would also put them B for exactly the reasons you stated. The end phases are not great. I think they have some solid surges, but that's not enough to carry through that glory ceiling. Void Curse is going to be really hard for them because not only is it turning off your range threes, you really want your leader to be on two block. And you're just not going to get that if he gets Void Cursed. But you're right, like, this power deck is nuts. It's, like, patently pretty crazy in some of these gambits. I would put them, like, B+. I would also really want to put them in A tier. If there was, I don't think we're ever going to get one, if there was a Rivals deck that was about making range 3-plus attack actions, I think this Warband becomes, like, A tier overnight, A-plus tier, maybe even overnight. Maybe, but... For the curtain metagame, for what we're looking at, and again, like you said, comparing to existing factions that you could play that play very similar play styles, I think B is an excellent spot for them to be in. Yeah, I'll echo those sentiments. I think mid to high B is is fair for them right now. I think as long as Void Curse exists, and it's going to for quite a while, you just can't push them to A tier because Void Curse is going to be at every event in some capacity at this point. Uh, and just the risk of hitting that matchup is, is enough to drop to our definition of how we've got B tier there, which is a particularly bad matchup. Awesome. So that is actually the end of our Shadespire discussion, and we're going to move into Night Vault. 
the second expansion. The first team we're going to talk about here is Stormsire's Cursebreakers. This was kind of the OG wizard team. This was Domitan before Domitan was around. If anyone remembers the era in championship, they were a bit of a terror. Nowadays, I think they're still good. This is still a team that has stats that talk about stat checking with elite warbands, just being able to put their bodies against other bodies and see how they do. You've got a three damage fighter. You have a solid range attack fighter on your leader. You have some really solid power cards, including innates in there, including pushes in there, including some solid gambit spells in there, and probably one of the best inspire conditions in the game. I I think it's not unfair to say that cast a spell to inspire immediately is extremely reliable. They are held back a little bit by their end phases, I think is kind of the big thing. But that is less of an issue at the moment because Force of Frost has really good end phases and is an excellent pairing for them. You could also do them with Seismic Shock, which has good end phases and has a lot of good spells for them and can make your Evocators level two in either of those decks, at least for a little bit in Seismic Shock. So I think I would personally put these guys A. Maybe they're the bottom of A. I think they have really good pairings. I even think you could play them with like breakneck slaughter and take advantage of those innate hammer and those really solid evocator attack stat profiles you just do the on card spell to inspire them and give them rerolls and then both tumbler and moving target are basically on guard because when they're inspired both faces of the dice count as successes i think there's a lot of synergies there that's not being taken advantage of but i could see going down to b just because of like Far Striders, you have this dominant hand comparison of, all right, I'm going to play a three model Stormcast Warband with good stats, and in this case, with good casting. Why would I play them over Domitans? And I think it's hard to make that distinction, but the baseline power that they bring, I personally believe, offers them A tier. Yeah, I've got them at like high B tier. I think they are slightly below where I'd like to see for an A tier warband. I do agree that Force of Frost probably makes the most uh, sense as a pairing. You've got the upgrades to get both of the other wizards to level two with Cool and Calm and Armor of Ice. Armor of Ice also bumps you to two shields, which combined with their ability to also succeed on dodge is effectively like two shields on guard, even though they can't be on guard. And they have the casting surge for, I think it's just what, cast a spell, right? So, Yeah, probably the best surge in the game. I do think that their objective deck overall suffers pretty heavily, and they don't have, like, for the most part, outside of, say, the Innate Hammer, for example, they don't have a ton of crazy powerful gambits and upgrades that you see in something like Domitan or in Headcracker or other kind of meta-relevant wizard-having warbands. So I think I would struggle to put them into that low A range just because especially looking at what we've got in the A tier coming down the line, I think they are a little bit of a step down, but I would slot them in the top B type of range and then maybe there's a discussion to be had about low A later. Yeah, I I have to agree with Mark here. I I put these in B myself and everything you said, Zach, is, is correct, right? They do have these fantastically reliable inspires. They have a great deal of, of really nice stats, but where where they struggle again is Amos and Rastus are both only move three, even though you can get those great inspired attack profiles. And they just, their objective deck is again the weak point and their gambit deck to an extent, although the gambit deck is quite nice because it has two 
plus one damage on the next attack gambits. You have access to innate channels if you really want to do the casting thing. But they, they only really have one or two playable surges. And it's, it's a great surge, cast a spell for one. And precise use of force, they have a faction version of it. Which, for listeners who didn't play way too much in Shadespire, is a surge for after an attack action that takes an enemy fighter out of action and dealt precisely enough damage to do so. And they can do that. That's just two surges. Force of Frost is really going to be a hard time to fill out four surges with them, especially because if you don't want to take lots of killy-killy stuff, you have to take Glacial Cool at least, and Void Cursing Stormsire is, is a bad time, so you don't want to stand on tokens with him. Seismic wants them to stand on tokens, and Void Curse gives Stormsire a bad time. And same in the end phases, they have one really great end phase, which is, did you cast two or more spells this round to glory? But then the rest are a bit lackluster and a lot of work. So they, they just fall a bit flatter on the objectives more than anything else, and I think that's what hurts their consistency the most. So I, I have to put them in B for the same reasons that Far Striders are in B. I could agree with that. I think for me, they were like on the bottom of A. I think in a world where some of these other teams weren't there to compare to, but that is not the world we live in. So B is absolutely fine. So that was the first warband from the Night Vault starter box. Let's talk about Thorns. Mark, you want to go for that? So I love me some Thorns of the Briar Queen. Just the Even with the nerfs, Spark Labs push action is still pretty ridiculous. Once around, moving all of your chain rats up to two hexes, nicely eroded in the recent uh, update as well, so you don't have to push all of them. It's very nice if you've got some that are already in position you want them to be in. I do think, similar to Spike Claw, this is a warband that if you take them into championship, have a lot more legs because you can fill in some of the holes. But once again, the faction objective deck is really going to let you down here. They've got fantastic gambits and some decent upgrades. I think their upgrade deck is overall pretty weak, but they've got a plus one dice card. They've got the Inescapable Vengeance to teleport the leader around a little bit. But the the objectives are just terrible. Like you've got Treacherous Foe, which is fantastic. Make a reaction surge for one glory. And then you might just not take any more faction objectives in your deck. Uh, or you might be forced to and and not like it very much. I think they've got one for hold all on their board, which I believe was eroded to include no one's territory for one glory, which is brutal. <laughs> so I think if you can find a deck or if they print a deck that has that great objective support, similar to Spike Claw, it might work for them, but it would be busted for everybody if it were that good to support them. So I've got them in the C tier. I think they're just over the line where they have some play. Personally, I like Force of Frost these days for them. Time freeze is uh, really good. You get the two guard gambits, guard tokens rather. So you can put that on, say, Briar Queen and Varclav. You can do a Varclav push with that first activation. And based on the new FAQ, you do get to inspire before that second activation takes place. So you can push in the chain rasps for support. They all inspire leading into that activation. And then you can either attack with Briar Queen or if, say, you gave the guard and ice counter to like uh, the Everhanged, for example. Now he's been pushed in, inspired, and, and is able to make an attack with an inspired profile. I think that's a really nice angle for them. And they can do some casting stuff. You have the ability to Everwinter Staff, a backup caster, to make Howling Vortex a little bit more of a reliable card to bring to your deck, which is just an insane, probably still the most powerful spell in the game. Pushing each of your opponent's fighters one hex is just ridiculous. So I think C tier, probably mid to low end, 
is where they end up landing for me. That little bit of play is nice, but they're just going to bleed too much glory and not score much back with their faction objectives being what they are. Yeah, I, I have to agree with that. We keep saying this, and it's, it's worth reiterating that this is kind of, the game has evolved, design has evolved, and these were incredibly strong in their heyday with universal cards, but now we're talking Nemesis where they have to use more of their faction cards. They do have the rudest spell in the game, like you said. And they do have, you know, as a good shot, they have some of the best horde stats defensively. I mean, they're one of the first everyone goes dodge warbands. That was also a trait Spideclaw had that was really, really unique at the time. But the changes to the Inspire timing is quite difficult for them. It makes some of their best tricks with the Queen a bit more lackluster. And in Nemesis, where they don't have the kind of flex glory that they might want access to and they have to fight they're just very vulnerable to getting farmed two dodge is nice but those chain rasps have a harder time inspiring like you said time freeze is a great great combo for them and i think they could even play seismic and just they have to greed for the the supremacy but that's so easily denied right so it's it's just not consistent and i have to agree with c tier as much as i have felt the terror of this warband all the way back to season two and I felt the terror of them being played very aggro with the queen, you know, suddenly appearing and just moving around starting hex to starting hex and bonking people. It's just not what it used to be with no objective backing it up. I had actually placed these guys at kind of bottom of B tier. I agree with all the sentiments. I just, I have a soft spot for Thorns because I competed with them a lot back in the Nightfall and especially Beast Grave days. But yeah, they're... Their end phases are just kind of no bueno. They do farm a lot of glory, just like all other Horde War bands. I think there's probably room to try them with the new mask stuff. They're pretty easy at scoring a lot of those mask cards if you can draw a couple of them. And like you said, their upgrades, they have some good ones, but a lot are lackluster. There's no downside to really throwing four or five masks in there. You score Mask Stranger really easily. You score the surges really easily because they're all hold objective surges and you're just going to do that anyway. They don't compare quite well, especially the objective deck. So I think C is a good place. I'd probably play some higher in C maybe than the discussion would have led. But C tier, I think, is a good place for them to land. And that will bring us to Eyes of the Nine. George, what are your feelings about everyone's favorite Zinch Warband? Oh man, Eyes of the Nine. I, I wanted to love these guys way back in the day. I was so excited for the models. They're rough. Let, let's off the rip, let's put them in D tier. And in, in Nemesis, we can honestly make, let, let's just make a tier for them that's called Eyes tier and it's below D tier. It's so rough for a five fighter warband to have. They, they have some stuff going for them. Let me, let me start with the positives. Kacharik is a guided ballistic missile. Vortimus is solid, you know, and especially he can get Voltron up and get quite scary, and they have the upgrades to do that, but the faction objectives are lacking. Just overall, I think they only have one or two surges you could play. They only have maybe one or two end phases you could play. They're stuck playing Force of Frost or Seismic Shock because they are so dependent on spells, but they don't really have that many spells in their faction deck, and, and this is where they start to have a hard time. They would be stronger if they just were a three-fighter warband, even with the, the crap sack stats. If they were just Kacharik, Vortimus, and the Blue Horror, I, I actually think they would be quite scary. 
And I mean, just hear me out because you can put those two at the back and you don't even have to summon the horror. You're worth two glory and they don't fight you until you're ready to fight them. But we're not ready for that. And so they're stuck with Narvia and Turash. Quite possibly the worst pair of Dangle Bros in the history of Dangle Bros. And I'm including Hakka and Basha, Arnulf and Targor, Donner and Blitzen. They're, they're all better than poor Narvia and Turash with their two Fury range three attacks that they have to hit to inspire, and their one defense dice, and their one damage everywhere, and their two wounds. They have a couple really cool things going for them, like I said, and Kacharik is a very strong piece, especially if you can get that spell off with Vortimus. Again, if we're comparing them to Stormsire in the same season. Yeah, I brought them to a Nemesis tournament somewhat recently just to see. Similar to George, I love Eyes of the Nine. The models are great. They have some really interesting mechanics with the blue horror summoning and things like that. They're just bad. Like, you have to use Narvaya and Tarash, so you're making so many two fury attacks. And, like, at this tournament, I rolled quite well. Like, I hit a lot of them. But you're just doing one damage when you do so. It's painful. And then the game's Rewardimus dies in round two or earlier. Like anytime in round two or earlier, you just lose. The game is over. Like there's no reason to play them. Gotta be D tier. I unfortunately agree. I love the Zinch AOS aesthetic. Like I bought Silver Tower. I got the Gaunt Summoner out of there. Both Ephilim and Vortimus looks so good next to the Gaunt Summoner and next to all the demons and stuff. It's just, yeah, it's very depressing to play. I, I'm, I'm going to talk more about game design than I am going to talk about these guys. They're D tier, whatever. I think it's really interesting looking at the way weird teams have developed in Underworlds compared to this, because this was kind of the first one where it's weird. You had a fighter that didn't start on the board and you had to summon it. You had like, a mix of melee and shooting and magic. And so it was like a little bit of everything. You had a leader that could auto hit because he had a innate channel upgrade. And when he's inspired, he hits on channels. So you could turn him into this weird turret that auto hits at least one dice every single shooting attack. It was a weird warband. And we've seen new weird warbands and they've all just been much better. Like I think if it was designed nowadays, Similar to Skritter or Spinefin, I think the horrors probably wouldn't be worth glory. If, you know, compared to Pandemonium, I think we would see Narvi and Tarash have spell attack actions instead of ranged attack actions, and that would help you score cards. So one day when these guys get a remake, hopefully, maybe, crossing my fingers, I think they will be really interesting and really cool. But as it is, they are probably the worst team in the game, and that is saying something. They did already get their remake. Yeah, just, it's just called Ephilim. I do want to point out that the Inspired profile is still focused for uh, Vortimus. It's just he has the attack action upgrade for Piercing Bolt that turn, gives him an additional three range cast on channel right. for one damage with Cleave, which is actually quite good because he yeah. does have the plus one damage in faction to spell attacks. And then if you're playing Seismic Shock, you pop, you pop the Grievous on as well. You can do some work. But uh, it, it needs Vortivus to be alive, and he's just unfortunately not that tanky. Ah, well, let's go to something that's maybe a bit better, and this is Zarbag's Gits. This is the most Horde War team that ever Horde War teams, because this is because this is a team with nine models, the only team with nine models. So they bleed glory a lot, but they have a, a lot of weird, crazy mechanics. There was a short time where you would just play these guys and win off the back of Snurk doing Snurk things. 
and that was very funny. As it is, I've got them somewhere in C tier. They have the same issues that all Horde Warbands have, which is there's not really a Horde Warband deck. While they can work pretty well with Fearsome Fortress, they're kind of okay with Void Curse Thralls because you're probably just going to Void Curse the Squigs and Drigzit. It's still not fantastic. I guess you you would just never Void Curse Snurk. If, it, if Snurk gets Void Cursed, you lose the game, which makes the, Snurk, the Void Curse matchup itself really, really bad. I don't know. I, I want them to be good because I think they are one of the more interesting and occasionally better Horde Warbands. They actually have some pretty decent cards, some okay end phases. They have a number of solid power cards and the synergies you can kind of get with the Squigs and Snurk and Drigzit makes them really interesting. Ultimately, I think they have more downsides than upsides. So C tier, I think, is where I'd place them. Yeah, I've got a similar look at like low C tier kind of range for them. The the glory bleed is just too much these days. And Avalanche got nerfed, but I don't think it's dead by any means. And this is obviously the most susceptible to Avalanche Warband that exists in the game. And then their faction objectives are very bad. Like for the most part, very bad. You do have the kill with Snurk for two glory, which would be interesting. Infestation, I think, is just really hard these days. Now that we're out of the old goo seasons, so you can't really rely on it. They can boost their glory ceiling a little bit more than some of the other Horde War bands that I would ordinarily stick in D, like Conquered Domain, for example, can really pop off for them on the Fearsome Fortress pairing, which you shouted out, I think is probably their best pairing in Nemesis. So they've got play, but is it enough to put them at the range of a competitive kind of top or higher tier war band? No. So I think C tier probably close to the bottom of makes the most sense. I agree. I, I For my list, they're in the D tier just because they bleed more glory than anyone but maybe Exiled Dead. And it's just rough. Their, their nerf is rough. I think I would leave them in C if they had the slightly easier Inspire condition where you could say, I can score three glory round one and I'll access my two dodge and that does wonders to kind of curtail the bleed. But Four glory in round one from a, a nemesis built deck is a tremendous ask. And and they don't, they just can't quite do it. They're in D tier for me, which is a shame because I, I love the models. I love the goblins. I mean, nine bounty on the table for your opponent to eat. 18 if it's Magor, you know. But low C, high D, I'm fine leaving them in C. I just think that they are like a world apart from some of the other stuff that is relegated to C right now, like Thorns. Spike Claw, Chosen Axes, Garrick, I think all of them just are, you know, head and shoulders over how Zarbag has to exist in Nemesis. That That's really fair. They're at that weird spot where it's like, I would agree they're probably worse than a lot of the stuff we've put in C, but I would think that they're also better than a lot of the stuff we put in D. So it's in that, we again, we're in a weird gray area, much like some of the other Horde War bands, maybe one good Rivals deck away from being a C-tier War band, like a top of C-tier War band, but as it is. Next, we've got another interesting one to talk about. Mark, what do you think about the Godsworn Hunt? They're not very good in this format, unfortunately. Nemesis, like, first of all, you need to inspire when you get an upgrade onto the fighter. Nemesis is already a little bit more gate-kept as far as how quickly you can get that seed glory to get the upgrades down, so that's an inherent disadvantage for them in the format. But I think there's just not a deck that's come out that can really compensate for particularly how bad their stats are, except for like Grunden. I think outside of that, they really don't have a lot of threat presence on the board. 
lot of guys who are doing the two fury one damage type of stuff they're just not compensating for it in their faction deck i don't know i have a hard time seeing these guys getting out of the d tier i think they are maybe slightly better than the other war bands we've placed in d tier so far but like if we're talking about zarbag being on the low end of c i think they have less play than zarbag overall as far as pairings go it's a hard call. I mean, Passive Prophecy maybe, but their faction end phases don't really support that play. The only reason I'm thinking of that is you can get the free upgrade out with Fair Fortune to get like Inspired Grundon doing some some big things potentially early. But I really don't see a Rivals deck that's going to quote-unquote fix them in the current amount. And then again, we get to the issue of if a Rivals deck came out that did fix them, it's going to be ridiculous for everybody else, I think. So... D tier for me, and I kind of had trouble seeing them anywhere else. They're hungry for that kind of flex hold aggro, but they're also hungry for really, really reliable surges to do their flex aggro things because of their inspire condition. They have some interesting cards. They have, you know, I want to say three solid fighters. I think Grundan, Thedra, Shond are all acceptable once they're inspired. But, you know, again, they're, they're a dodge warband that doesn't go to two dodge inspired that is mostly three wounds all three wounds or two wounds it's it's very tough you know they they have the potential ceiling with oath of supremacy maybe oath of conquest but those are kind of themselves anti-synergistic i mean there's there's not much more to say more than george and mark have said so let's leave them there and uh, well maybe one day they'll get remade as well that brings us to our very first big guy warband in the game. Well, depending on how you look at Iron Skull. But let's talk about Molog's mob. George, take it away. Molog, the terror, the librarian, the legend. He's in an interesting place in Nemesis right now. Before Void Cursed Thralls came out, I, I would have put him in D tier without a question, despite his ludicrous stats. He has such a hard time leveraging them. His unique charge charge has been nerfed away. His move charge is substantially less special. His activate while charge is now something all the elite warbands can do with more elite bodies. His objectives are abysmal. He has some very nice upgrades for himself. He has a couple really, really nice, well, just one really nice gambit and a couple okay ones. He has a faction distraction. He has uh, plus one damage on the next attack. But Void Curse Thralls, I have to respect that if you have the maneuverability to just actually get him where he needs to be, and you have the space to take all the Void Curse things and just play for uncounted costs, maybe you can steal Threatening Presence with the Bat Squig and the Stalag Squig and kind of just control your board and no one's. I think there's potential. I think that potential is predicated on landing a lot of two hammer with a reroll or just two hammer attacks, which is dicey, but he's so big and he hits so hard that I, I think I have to respect the stats and put him in B. He might still be C, but I, I think specifically the Void Crystal's pairing could be B. Yeah, that is basically my thoughts as well. You can never discount seven wounds. You just can't. It is still the highest wound count in the game other than, I mean, Hrothgorn has a plus two wound upgrade that you will see in every single deck. It's the highest baseline defense in the game, and it's on a range two fighter that is three damage baseline. Like, there's just, you can never 
count out those stats. Sometimes the stats will just molog the game away. There's a reason that he's the first big guy warband we ever saw and is still viable in certain formats to compare to other big guy warbands. Nemesis suffers a bit, like we've said, because objectives are really important. I agree that Void Curse is probably the best pairing. You might be able to do some sort of breakneck thing, but not being able to move this Delag Squig actually actively hurts you with that pairing. I struggle to put him any lower than B just because of the stats and just because of that Void Curse pairing. Maybe that's a little bit overestimating, but I am I am still terrified every time I see him on the board. You could also do him with Toxic Terrors because he can just run around and do stuff and they use the po- the poisons to debuff, replace a lot of those bad objectives with synergistic poison objectives, but I don't know. He would never crack it into A for me, but I can't see putting him in C at the moment. I'm very far on the opposite side of this, so Zach and George have him in B. In the document we're working off of, I had him in D. Based on our conversation, I think I, I could be easily talked into C, just with some of the other warbands we've discussed so far. But I think more than any warband we've discussed so far, Molog is almost playing rivals in Nemesis. Like his his faction deck, I think, is the worst of any that we've discussed so far. Think like Wormspat level, but arguably worse, I would say. Um, you have maybe four total faction cards or so that you're pulling into a deck. So if you look at the available Universal Rivals decks currently, especially in the objectives, you're nearly taking 12. Uh, of that rivals deck's objectives and i don't think there's a single rivals deck that exists currently where even like say 10 plus of those objectives are what i would consider good for molog so yes he can bonk yes he can you know threaten those four wound fighters quite easily but you're just not backing it up with sufficient end phase or even surge glory scoring for me i think you'll have a lot of games where you might table your opponent's warband and score seven glory eight glory with Molog. And I think there's going to be a lot of times, especially against top meta threats where he suffers. Domitan, for example, has two guys that can hit him for three damage off the rip, finish him off with pings. Hexbane has woodcutter strength on Amos. So if you manage to miss that two hammer attack into Amos early and he gets the woodcutter down, it's a bad time for you. And even without him, you've got Bridget doing three damage. You've got extra reactions off the pistol to ping him down a little bit as he's making the extra moves. I do agree that Void Curse gives him some playability, but I think just the faction deck is so bad in this case that even Molog's great stats on his own can't necessarily overcome it. So maybe this will be a discussion we have later as well, but I personally can't see putting him above C tier, so I'm kind of on the opposite front. (laughs) I could be talked to putting him down to C. I just, I think it's a testament to the strength of Void Curse Thralls that playing almost Void Crystal's rivals, plus some accuracy and some damage, and one, you know, opponent reposition is is still something I find worthy of competitive respect. But you're you're right that there's substantial counterplay if you can minimize what the troll does. And it's the same counterplay that existed before Void Crystal's. You know, I, I played people who wanted to bring him in Nemesis quite frequently, and every time I would just, well, I will run past you, kill the small guys, and then run away all game. And, and you will not score anything. And even though you kill me, that's just three bounty. If I score my stuff, I win. And Void Curse does have a good deal of that weakness unless you can get off uncounted costs with Thrallmaker, for example. So 
I, I'm willing to go down the C tier on him for sure. I think he's just a bit above D tier, especially given what we've put in the D tier. He kind of should bonk his way through without issue because their objectives largely require them to fight him. Yeah, I I can't see putting him in D just based off of our stuff that we've put there and the these kind of framework we have in place. C is is reasonable. I I would still argue for B just because of that void curse pairing and maybe like I said toxic terrors though that ceiling is much lower. I mean the counterplay of just ignore the troll and kill everything else is basically the counterplay that's existed since that warband was put out. That was how you beat him in Nightfall, and that's still how you beat him today. So I think for now, let's let's put him in C, just because I think we've kind of been talked into that middle ground there. But maybe we will revisit that in the future. That brings us to Thunderx Profiteers, our not-naked dwarves, our very armored dwarves. I've got Profiteers in C. The, the issue here, and probably like on a lower end of C, the issue here is not their stats, because their stats are actually really, really solid stats overall. They've got some decent surges. A lot of the, they have like three surges that are just about making shooting attacks and then randomly scoring cards. Got a couple decent end phases. Not great, but some solid one glory end phases. They need that two glory support. And then their power deck is good. I like them in C. The biggest issue is the lack of a rival's deck to go with them. You can do Delverse. I don't think it's that good thanks to their low move speed. I, I tinkered around with a Void Cursed one, which was basically like you Void Cursed Drax Skewer and then hope nobody else ever gets a Void Cursed ever, except maybe Ellenson. It's not that great. And they have a bad matchup into other Void Curse as well, because as soon as you Void Curse Thunderic, the game basically ends there. It's just a little hard to find something that works with them. I, I guess if if I was pushed right now, I would either do probably Fortress or maybe Toxic. I think are both okay. I think if there was ever a deck that worked with them a little bit like Far Striders, they would just rock it up in value and probably be extremely good. For the time being, I mid-C kind of feels okay for me. Yeah, I've also got them in C tier. This is one of the first warbands that I picked up when I started playing the game. Love their aesthetic. But if you can't stand and shoot, you're going to have problems and Void Curse, I think, debilitates them more than any other faction we've talked about so far, especially because a lot of the viable ways to play Thundric involve them holding objectives. I think Fearsome Fortress is a good shout. They can do that okay. Passive Prophecy, I think, does have some merit as well, just because you have some easier surges to get the inspires out there's some decent hold objective support in there guided by fate ignores range restrictions so you can get the plus one dice from distance i think there's some merit to that uh, and sound finances you've got fair fortune has a little bit of synergy with that as well to help you not spend as much money on upgrades masks is maybe interesting for them you've got frostbit and veil in particular you can get the full rerolls for a round say you play it on thundric you can make the action get the rerolls drop his lethal hexes as a reaction there's some hold objective support in there, but ultimately, again, the presence of Void Curse is really going to hold them down. And unlike Far Striders, I think does hold them down into C tier as opposed to B, just because their faction deck is not as good and their base stats are not as threatening. Yeah, I had these in D tier on my personal list, but after discussion and since making the list, I've had the privilege of playing against them a little bit. I'm willing to put them in C. I think that it's it's a good point that they are debilitated by Void Curse to 
an extreme extent, to an extent even beyond what the Farstriders experience. Because the Farstriders really can be built to play to, I don't care about holding. Full stop. I'll run at you and you cursed me. I still have really nice range 1 attacks on all three fighters. These guys don't. Only Draxkewer presents any kind of threat if he's not making range 3 attacks. And they crumple to early diving invasion. You know, with these two wound fighters, that they're not three wounds until they inspire. And those aren't necessarily the first ones you want to inspire. It's just difficult, because I do like them. I like the steampunk dwarves. I think that you're right that a good end phase deck for them could tune them up a notch. I think that a good end phase deck for them, though, is, is going to be one that favors holding. And so they'll still be suffering from that Void Curse matchup. So their, their you know, heyday may come when Void Curse rotates or something takes it out of vogue, but you and I are both playing this game still, so Void Curse is never going out of vogue. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, yeah, we've got some real Void Curse pioneers. Like, literally, you, you guys don't know, but in our internal chat, basically every time we're talking about a warband, Mark and George are like, oh, I've got a Void Curse deck for that. You want to try it out? And I'm just like, well, maybe, but actually, yeah, this turns out to be pretty good. I think we're all on the same page here for Profiteers, but maybe we'll see some better objectives come down the line and see a little resurgence of the uh, the Steampunk Dwarves. And that brings us to our last team for this tier list episode, the last of Night Vault, and that is going to be Yothari's Guardians. So the first Sylvaneth team, Yothari's Guardians, Mark, take it away. Yothari is interesting. I think the casting support, particularly with Force of Frost, has made them a little more interesting than they were beforehand. Seismic Shock was kind of okay. Tooth and Claw was kind of okay. You could do some stuff. Uh, but I think Force of Frost is probably their best pairing now. You can get a little bit more bulk out with things like Armor of Ice. You can have backup casting as well, since you're kind of forced to lean into making those casting rolls uh, in Nemesis. I do think that they're pretty heavily outclassed, obviously, by the main casting warbands, which are Domaton and Ephilim, but then also dropping down to like Stormsire is much better at casting and staying alive because, you know, get a bunch of three wound fighters. So outside of Galagan, they're kind of vulnerable. Uh, and then even if you look at like what I would consider to be the modern version of them in Miari's Purifiers, I think there's just a lot better overall synergy for Purifiers out there right now. They cast just as well, and then they have better baseline faction cards to pair with them as well for holding objectives, for example. Even casting spells, they've got a similar surge for casting two spells in a round, but they also have the backup plan of doing it off of removing an Aether Quartz token, which Eltari doesn't have that backup plan for. So I think they're fine, they're playable, but they're not going to be at that more top-level, top-end competitive. I think the ceiling on other warbands is just higher, uh, so I would put them somewhere towards the upper end of C-tier, personally. Uh, I don't think they're going to quite crack into B when we look at what else is going to be there, especially given the kind of redundancy of what they do versus what other higher-tier warbands can accomplish. I'm going to dissent slightly. I think they can make it into B, just on a couple of their strong faction cards. I know people are a bit down that it can be difficult to inspire them, because there's not a lot of healing in Nemesis. My counter to that is that they don't really need inspiring particularly desperately. Ilthari, you know, has a chance to inspire herself if she backlashes and then heals it. Galangan is perfectly respectable, uninspired. Scathale is perfectly respectable, uninspired. Onslaying gets really nice if you can inspire her and put a weapon on her. And she does have that one fantastic shot, one shot upgrade from Power Unbound. 
all in all, though, I think they have, you know, a little bit of everything. They don't have a strong niche. So you're very accurate to point out that Miari does what they do better and other casters do casting better, but they have some nice spells. They have some nice push and reactions. They have some nice stats. They have some nice end phases for holding and being a bit, you know, defensive and flexy with their territory. I do think that everything they do, any one thing you pick for them to do, there's other warbands that do that thing and probably some of the other things better, but they're, you know, serviceable. They're adequate. I think you could take them in B and you're not really hurting yourself on the stats and they have enough in their deck that they're not completely just bricking one category, the same as, you know, other warbands are, well, I have to take them and then there's shit for surges. So I, I could see C, but I, I think it's definitely the higher end and I think they could hang out in B for someone who's practiced them. We're really all over the board on this one because on the document we've got here, I have them in D. I'm going to dissent again in the other direction. Yes, I don't disagree with things that have been said here. They get to do everything, a little bit of everything good, but I don't think Jack of all trades is as good as a master of one. At the end of the day, I think this majority three wound warband that doesn't have a lot of passive scoring is going to suffer because things are going to run up and fight them. Yes, Galligan is really solid and very durable, but Anslain and Gathael, they're both three wounds on one defense dice. And unlike Miari, who we've just made the comparison to, they have to, for a lot of their objectives, they have to move in to engage. There's not a lot of passive scoring in the universal decks. As soon as you move things up there, half your team gets removed very quickly, and there's no way to inspire them to two defense dice very easily. And Scathile doesn't even inspire into two defense dice. I put them at like higher up in D because I don't think they're as bad as like Godsworn or Eyes. Like, heaven forbid they're, they're ever that bad. But I think they just have more downsides than they have upsides in general. And the things they do well, you can do well, like you said, with a lot of other warbands. Force of Frost helps them quite a bit because it does give them Everwinter Staff, which is not only a solid upgrade, it also gives you that backup wizard. It gives them a lot of utility. They already have some good casting, at least one good casting surge. I struggled to see them as good as some of the other things that we've put in C tier. And I think if they go up against a lot of things in C tier, they're going to get bodied just on a stat perspective in a metagame that is heavily around middle board, no man's land combat. I don't think they stand up to basically any other team that we've talked about. So, And it's only going to get worse going forward for them. That's just my opinion. I, I could see putting them in C. I think like low C is fine. I would really be loath to put them in B personally. Yeah, I think since we've got the spread of B, C, D on the voting anyway, we might as well put them in C for now. I think it'll be very interesting when we get to the final summary episode of where in C that they land, whether it's kind of on the higher end, middle end, or lower end of the slider. But yeah, I think C for now is fine. They've got some things they can do that are maybe better than some of the D-tier warbands. They've got some things that they can do that are not as good as some of the B-tier warbands. So I think it probably makes sense to leave them there for now, and we'll figure out exactly where they land at a later date. I think we'll need Amon to come in and be our tiebreaker on this one. Yes, exactly. I generally rate four fighter warbands that have at least some type of good juice in their upgrades a little bit higher if they have any kind of reach or any kind of defensive end phase, which Ilthari does have, 
because they do get to leverage the charge rule. They do have uh, a couple things that get really nasty as you take them out of action. They kind of they played really well around Army of One back in the day in Championship. So I'm just I'm willing to be wrong, and if people want to come out and tell me I'm wrong, I accept that. But I've had fun playing with them, and I think that just on you know they got two guys on two defense off the rip. You can kind of position nicely and passively and defensively with four. There's really the only four-fighter warband we've put super low during this conversation is Gerzag, and that's for, you know, really, really abysmal attack profiles on Inspired. That's true, and I, I don't disagree with some of the things that have been said, but overall, I think we just have some differing opinions on what we value specifically in a warband versus strengths and weaknesses, which is fine. I mean, this is a very subjective game, especially with so many different teams and, you know, rivals and combinations of decks and stuff. I think people are just going to have differing opinions and who knows, maybe somebody will bring a Yoltharis and, uh, and show us that they do belong in B tier, maybe not win an event, but you bring them to top eight, I will concede everything I've said and agree with you there. And yeah, Reclaim the Lamentary is still probably one of the best end phases in the game, which is great. It's a good conversation to be had around them, and I'm glad we had at least one that we had some disagreement on. I think a lot of the early ones, a lot of these early warbands have been, as we've said, power crept or design crept in a lot of cases, and that has held them back. It's nice to see a couple on here that we agree have held the test of time and have done pretty well for themselves in the nemesis world, even if some of them have not. But with the end of Night Vault, that is going to be the end of this episode. Our next episode will cover Beastgrave and Dire Chasm, as well as, I believe, Dreadfane. And that will be the beginning of, a, shall we say, a new design era. And we'll probably see a little bit of a differentiation in both power levels and design as we move into those warbands. But for today, that will bring us to the end of this episode. What do you guys think? Do you miss the Shadespire Night Vault days? Are you glad we've had these new direction changes do you hope some of these get updated or do you just want to see new and different teams in the future so i personally as a gamer missed the shadespire night vault days i didn't start until like late beast grave early diarchasm but i, I think as far as the war bands are concerned i would love to see some revitalization like they did with sepulchral guard specifically first riders they, they've completed the deck gave them their keywords and that was about it but if you could see like a Something that retains the soul of the warband, which I think the Sepulchral Guard changes did, while also making them more meta-relevant. I'd love to see that for Scritch, I, etc. Don't know that they'll ever do it, but certainly in terms of game design, since Nightfall and Shadespire, they've made teams a lot more competitively viable, if only because they have a full faction deck now. So I would love to see that for all of them. Whether we get it or not, I guess we'll see. I do miss some of the, the Shadespire meta as it were, I do miss when, you know, you had like the Hidden Paths plays, the Ready for Action plays, the My Turn plays, but I do also enjoy the game now. I'm not trying to act like, oh, everything new is bad. I would love to see some of my old models get a new lease on life, especially Thundrix, Zarbags, Chosen Axes. I want Scritch to get updated, but I also don't because I don't want to give up Black Hunger and Expendable. So I'm I'm of two minds there because there's no way you could have either of those effects today. Yeah, it's interesting to see because 
the old warbands had some really nutty abilities and designs. Most warbands had at least one card that just like wouldn't be printed today because it was too good, whether that's a range unrestricted distraction like many warbands had, or both Iron Skull and Chosen Axes have a don't die upgrade, like one of those like 50-50 or like one in three things where the, the fighter doesn't die. I don't think you would just see those in modern card design. But despite having a few really one-off powerful things, modern card design is just overall more powerful because you're having that that deck synergy and it just feels better to play. I, I'm glad with the direction design has gone. Like like you guys said, I think there's some old teams I'd love to get updated just so I can put the models on the table, man. I just I just want to put Thunderwick on the board and feel good about it. And same with Spike Claw uh, and a couple of the other ones. We'll see what they do in the future. Maybe we'll get another starter box. Maybe one day they'll just drop some rivals decks for old warbands. I don't think that'll happen, but you know, we can all, we can all dare to dream, let's say. But thank you all for listening, listeners. Uh, this was really fun. I'm glad we're doing this tier list. We've talked about it so much, and there's so, been so much talk in the various discords and online communities. I think it's nice to just have this discussion. So stick with us as we cover the entire gamut of all 55 and counting Underworlds teams and place them all in the tier list. So for now, we wish you luck in your path to glory.